Systems. We've got Beaver Ambassador Steve Marshall and environmental journalist Ben Goldfarb waiting in the wings to speak with you about beavers in just a couple seconds. Kebu Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Thirsty City, a monthly beat and rap night at the liquor store in Portland. On Friday, October 26th, Thirsty City hosts Los Angeles-based Mike Slot and Jansport, along with sets by Omari Jazz, Rap Class, Bravo Domo, and Slurgeon. Kebu's Northern Draw will also be DJing. Again, that's Thirsty City at the Liquor Store, 3341 Southeast Belmont Street in Portland. This is a 21 and over event. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the Law for the People Convention from October 31st through the 4th at the Benson Hotel in Portland. Registration is now open for this five-day conference. Panels and workshops include Facing Fascism, What's the NLG's Role in Defending Resistance to Fascism? Movement Lawyering for Racial Justice. Disaster Capitalism, Colonialism and Climate Change. What it means to do movement legal support in indigenous communities and much more. Again, registration is now open for the Law for the People National Lawyers Guild Convention from October 31st through the 4th at the Benson Hotel, 309 Southwest Broadway in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Hi, you're tuned to KBOO Portland. I'm Stephanie Potter, and this is The Recovery Zone, a show focused on healing our world. Today we're going to be talking about a remarkable rodent, the official state animal of Oregon, the mascot of Oregon State University, the beaver, and how we can partner with beavers to repair our ecosystem. My guests today are Ben Goldfarb, author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, and Ben's on the phone, and uh, you are on the phone, right, Ben? I am, yeah. Oh, Thanks great, for great, great, me. great. And then here with me in the studio is Stephen Merschel. Stephen serves as a beaver ambassador with the Department of or the Department of Parks and Recreation in Westland, and goes around giving talks about beavers. And um, I think after reading your book, Ben, I I'm basically in love with them. But um, I'd like to start, Ben, just with a little beaver history. Uh, there was a word in your book that just really resonated for me. It's called solastalgia. And after reading your book, I think I really had a bad case of it. <laughs> anyway, could you talk about that book? I mean, talk about that word and then, like, what's missing here in the U.S. from uh, what there used to be? Yeah, that's a, that's a great place to start. 
So, so nostalgia is a, is a word um, coined by a philosopher uh, maybe 10 years ago or so. And it, basically, it basically means sort of the homesickness that you experience without leaving home. So it's when, you're, when your home environment is, is transformed, um, you know, by, by, by deforestation or mining or what have you. Um, you know, there's this real sense of loss that comes with seeing your, your own ecosystem, your own, your own homeland transformed. And I think that's really what happened in, in North America. You know, uh, when, when European colonists first arrived uh, on this continent, you know, there were hundreds of millions of beavers creating hundreds of millions or billions of acres of ponds and wetlands all over North America. We know the continent was a much wetter, lusher place. And when we, when we killed all of those animals for the fur trade, uh, we lost a huge amount of that, that beaver-created habitat. All of those ponds and wetlands dried up streams eroded, uh, you know, lush, wet floodplains turned into dry pasture land, and uh, there was really severe environmental degradation that I think most people don't recognize today. So that's, that's sort of one of the big themes of the book, is the, the notion that North America was, prof- was profoundly transformed by the loss of these incredibly important keystone rodents. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, there's a, a quote, I think, by evolution biologist Elizabeth Sartoris, um, that humans are actually desert-making animals. Uh, we are biologically a desert-making species. We have been so since we cut trees and associated with hooved animals. And she says now we're actually in a high-tech speed-up. But first we, we, we basically um, almost exterminated all the beavers. And then we um, brought in, after that, the settlers who came in after the trappers brought in hooved animals. And that made it even a harsher place, basically, right? Right, exactly, and, and that also sort of made it harder for beavers to come back. Right, I mean, when you have when you have livestock, especially cows, uh, grazing unchecked in these these stream bottoms, you know, they're basically stripping all of the vegetation and, and not allowing the willow and aspen and cottonwood and other trees that beavers need to recover uh, to regrow. So I, I do think that there there is sort of this uh, vicious cycle um, that comes with trapping and and as you say, the introduction of hooved animals. Um, that that basically, uh, you know, made it hard for beavers and still makes it hard in many places for beavers to come back, even though the days of really intensive industrial fur trapping are are behind us. Right. And and what was it like, Stephen, here in Portland then? I mean, or around here? I mean, we're already pretty wet, but was it even more marshy and boggy and beautiful? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to begin by saying thank you so much for having me here as well. Um, And yeah, the Willamette floodplain, then the Columbia floodplain, especially the Columbia in this area, it used to go m- miles wider in certain areas. Um, we're getting even here in Portland to the end of the Columbia. And uh, as it finds its way down to the ocean, it's spreading itself wider and wider. And uh, with uh, all of the construction, um, the levees that we have up there to protect the flooding, we had a major flood in the 50s, 60s, and we lost an entire community. Uh, so that was Vanport. Yeah, Vanport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've done so so much uh, earth moving to, to keep the Columbia within the the river channel, as opposed to letting it go onto its uh, floodplain. Right. Well, I think that's one of the issues: is that beavers make things a little bit messy for um, human beings who want to be so in charge and in control of things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they'll. Uh, Army Corps tries to prevent the beavers from uh, digging tunnels into the levees up there. Right. Absolutely. Right. 
Um, well, let's let's talk. A, a, well, f- and actually, Ben, let's just um, real quickly. What got you so interested in beavers? <laughs> sure. Um, so I, I, I used to work for uh, the magazine High Country News, which covers sort of environmental issues throughout the, the American West. And uh, I was living in Seattle uh, some some years back, and I, I just you know I, I went to a, a beaver workshop, and I, you know I, I um, just heard all of these scientists um, sort of preaching about the the immense habitat creation and water storage value of these animals and, and that got me really excited and I, I wrote a couple of uh, articles for High Country News about beavers and that sort of turned into this this book but you know I think like most people I'd, I'd always had some you know baseline awareness of beavers I'd certainly seen many beavers while out fishing and hiking and camping um, I just didn't recognize them as these these incredible continent scale forces of, of transformation uh, Ben who was the host of the workshop up there um, yeah, it was sort of hosted by all by a few a few different folks. Um, you know, people from from uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and, uh, and Atmospheric Administration, were very involved. Um, you know, Michael Pollack and Chris Jordan, um, and then uh, Kent Woodruff, who was then the, the director of the Metow Beaver Project in the Metow Valley in Central Washington. Um, he was you know, he was sort of my my beaver mentor. He was the guy who really got me fired up about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's basic real scientists talking about real stuff there. And um and what got you so into it? Stephen? Well, I think it's actually all the same thing. Um all those people that he mentioned, Michael Pollack and Ken Woodruff, um uh and Greg Llewellyn is actually a good friend of mine. They all wrote um the Beaver Restoration Guidebook uh with Janine Castro who's actually here in Portland. Um and uh, he, Greg being a good friend of mine, really charismatic um extroverted uh great great guy um he just hooked me onto the beaver train as he was writing this guidebook um he was talking about it all the time and it just sounded fascinating yeah and have you read ben's book oh yeah absolutely it's great <laughs> yeah he did an incredible job um yeah really really great book yeah it's, and and, St- and Stephen actually had me out to, to give a talk at the at the library too uh, earlier this earlier this year, which was really generous. That's great, great. So we we go we go way back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and let's talk a little just about beavers themselves, um, like what they're like. Uh, like I know that they're clumsy on the land, but they're super swimmers, right? And just a few things about them. What do you, what could you guys tell us? Yeah, they're, they're well. They're as you say, they're they're incredibly well adapted to this this really unique semi-aquatic life they have and they spend most of their time in the in the water as you say and that's the point of the of dam building right is they're trying to basically increase the the width and depth of of the water in which they're safe from predators like bears and cougars and coyotes um so they've got all kinds of great adaptations for this this really unique uh sort of aquatic lifestyle um you know a couple of my favorites they've got they've got a second set of eyelids that actually are a set of transparent sort of goggle-like eyelids they can close over their eyes to protect their eyes underwater uh they have a second set of of fur-lined lips uh, they can close behind their teeth so they can chew and drag branches underwater without getting water down their throats. I think that's that's really cool. And, uh, you know, of course, they have these, this incredibly dense fur. You know, beavers actually have as many individual hairs on a, a postage stamp-sized patch of skin as we humans have on our entire heads. So, wow. of course, you know, if you're an animal that spends its life in the water, you know, you need to stay warm. And beavers actually have two layers of really dense fur um, that, that help them stay warm. Uh, and that, unfortunately, was that, that luscious, thick, uh, really mm-hmm. dense fur that was also their, their undoing. Right, right. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things I find really fascinating with beavers as well. Um, I think their tail is really amazing. They've got a yeah. special network of veins within the... T- I'm not sure if you told me this, Ben. Within their tail, that helps regulate their body temperature because they're going mm-hmm. in and out of cold water all the time. And uh, I'm also really fascinated by all of these misconceptions that we have about beavers. Even in the science world, we're always coming up with, oh, we were wrong about this thing that we thought was true with beavers. And now that we're studying them a little bit closer, we're finding new things all the time. Well, like one thing they mate for life, like how do they live? They, they're very devoted to their families. Mm-hmm, What's mm-hmm. that like? It's actually a lot like us, a lot like people. Um, you know, when when your kids turn 18, you, you kick them out of the house, they go off to college. Uh, it's the same more or less with beavers. It's one of the things we're actually finding it's not as common as we thought it was, but it still uh, holds true from for most part. Um, when beavers turn two years old, they're, they head off into the, their own world, uh, off into this, the stream system to find their own home and their own mate. And yeah, they, t- they do typically mate for life. Yeah. And, and they stay, though, with their parents and learn how to build dams and build lodges. And they build mm-hmm. incredible lodges, right? Um, yeah, that's, that is pretty common around here. It's a little bit less common. That tends to be a lot more common um, out in the Great Plains uh, and places where it's a lot flatter here in Oregon, where we have a lot of topographic variation, they will tunnel into the banks of rivers uh, a oh, lot more really? commonly. Oh. Yeah. They build, they, they're cave dwellers. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and what do they eat? Not fish. <laughs> <laughs> so what's their favorite stuff yeah, to be- eat? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, well, uh, Stephen can probably talk more about what, about what they eat in in Portland, but in Portland in particular. But you know, in general, they're they're so they're eating the, the cambium, which is the inner bark of of trees. Um, so you know, willow, aspen, cottonwood, alder. Those are you know some some of the classic beaver foods. Uh, but you know, they'll they'll eat uh, most most deciduous trees. They eat lots of you know green herbaceous vegetation too. You know, you see them like practically mowing the lawn like a like a sheep or something. They'll they'll just happily eat grass and. and many places um, and they tend to they tend to avoid conifers although I know that that uh, Stephen has seen uh, in West Lynn they've, they've taken down some pretty some pretty sizable conifers which is something of a of a mystery I think because really? they're generally not eating those trees yeah yeah, yeah they're also uh, foraging a lot uh, the first time I saw a beaver you know really up close uh, it was in my backyard I had a pear tree and I had not harvested any of the pears and the beaver came up out of the water and ate almost Every pair, dozens and dozens of pairs that were just down there on <laughs> the ground. Just lying on the ground. Wow, yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't really hibernate in the winter. They're kind of busy all year round, right? Uh, they just live in their lodge, come out, pop in back and forth. Yeah, they'll they'll what they what they do is they they'll basically in in late fall typically they'll assemble a food cache so they they cut a bunch of sticks uh, and they you know they kind of they kind of hide those uh, at the bottom of the pond and, and then they have that that food supply that they can access all all year round as you said uh, so they don't really they don't really hibernate um, they are they're definitely less less active in the winter and their you know metabolism slows down a lot um, but they are still yeah going back and forth from log from lodge to to food cache uh, at least in places where you know where where uh, ponds iced over that might not be true in Portland yeah well that I, I I don't know I just I just thought and then when I saw them like I, I looked at some videos on YouTube and I just couldn't help but think how cute they were I mean they're big they're like maybe 40 <laughs> or 50 60 pounds but still 
like a rehab place and it was sitting on a woman's lap and she was petting it and it, it was just so peaceful. But anyway, uh, you're tuned to the Recovery <laughs> Zone on KBOO Portland. I'm speaking with Ben Goldfarb, an environmental journalist and author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. And he's with us on the phone. And here in the studio is Stephen Merschel, who's a beaver ambassador with the Department of Parks and Recreation in Westland. You can also call in with your questions or comments, and the phone number here is 503-231-8187. And so they're pretty messy, as we mentioned, but that's basically a good thing. Um, And uh, I'd like to sort of go into talking just about some of their benefits. For instance, um, I guess the the biggest thing is like in how you started is that they create wetlands. And could you just talk a little more about, like, why is that so important? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, so you know, in the, in the in the American West, wetlands cover about two percent of the total land area. So they're, they're you know pretty unusual landscape feature at this point because we've drained most of them. And and um, what were they before again? They were. What were they? Oh, before? Sorry. What were they before? Oh, that's you know that's a yeah that's a that's a, gr- a great question, Stephanie, and I I I don't know. Uh-huh, uh, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that anybody knows. I know, I know that nation, nationwide we've we've lost more than more than half of our of our total historic wetlands. Um, so okay, you know perhaps perhaps double that. So, so they were never a prominent feature, but they're an incredibly critical life supporting feature. I mean, what we know that water is life, and uh, so about eighty percent of biodiversity of of, of species in the American West uses wetlands at some point in their life. Um, so, you know, if you're if you're a moose, you know, you use wetlands to, to eat aquatic plants and cool off. You know, if you're if you're a, a wood duck or other waterfowl, uh, you know, you're using those habitats to, to forage and nest. Um, if you're, you know, if you're an amphibian, you're breeding in them. Uh, and then, of course, in the Northwest, you know, salmon um, are, are really big users of, of these ponds and wetlands, these slow water habitats. You know, if you're if you're a baby fish, uh, a baby salmon, you know, you don't want to live in the main channel of the river where you're just going to get blown downstream. You want to find some kind of nice slow water refuge where you can hide and, and uh, be safe from predators under some brush and uh, conserve your energy. Um, so we know that beavers create incredibly critical sort of uh, rearing habitat for young salmon and trout. And, uh, you know, in, the, in, in Oregon and Washington, that's, that's probably the, the biggest reason that beavers are kind of a hot restoration strategy right now is because of that salmon connection, because there's so much interest and, and funding for salmon recovery. And there was concern originally that um, the dams would hinder the salmon, but that's not true, is it? Yeah, that's that is that. Uh, you know, I think that it, it maybe in some cases at very low water, it's possible that that uh, that dams could be a, a temporary obstacle for fish. Uh, but you know, we know that most most uh, adult salmon moving upstream tend to migrate during periods of of high water. And during high water, you know, water is going over beaver dams, it's going around beaver dams. So fish actually have no no trouble finding their way past these these uh, beaver created barriers. And in fact, one study uh, in Central Oregon um, found individual salmon passing more than 200 beaver dams uh, on their way to, to spawn. Wow. Um, so, you know, as, as, one, as one bumper sticker puts it, uh, beavers taught salmon to jump. You know, there's a, a long evolutionary <laughs> history here, and uh, salmon have, uh, have no trouble figuring out these beaver-created habitats. Yeah, uh, beavers have gotten a pretty bad rap, and it would be uh, fascinating to go back and see the, the social history of that uh, beginning with the trapping 
Um, but then in the, the 50s and 60s, I would say there was real pushback about as the beaver population was increasing once again. Uh, people wanted to trap them out, get them out of their farms or backyards or whatever it is that um, they could potentially be damaging. And I think that the whole, uh, the f for here, especially the Pacific Northwest, the fish can't get around beaver dams was just something that people could cling to as another misconception uh, that they could try to use to work for them, which turned out to not be true. Yeah. And and they do benefit birds. There's some kind of a, a heron or something that actually likes to build its nest on the beaver lodges or the dams or something. I, I remember reading about something. Yeah, Trump. Trumpet. Yeah, trumpeter, trumpeter, trumpeter swans are, ah. are sort of the, the classic example of, of the, the lodge nesting um, waterfowl. But you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen different species of geese doing that. Um, so yeah, these these lodges are, are pretty pretty critical. You know, if you, if you're a, a waterfowl, <coughs> you know, you you want to you want to raise your chicks, um, you know, on some kind of island where they can be safe from foxes and coyotes and other predators. And beavers are sort of creating that kind of island habitat so you see nesting directly at top lodges in, in, in lots of places we got a really incredible picture of a green heron i put out um motion activated cameras and we, we get some really great pictures of wildlife and we got a great picture of a green heron <laughs> on top of a beaver dam that's great and and th there's a bunch of other stuff they do like for instance um they filter pollution and you in your book ben you talked about how they could even have a positive impact on the dead zones in oceans there are some great facts there and how they break down nitrate molecules. Molecules. Could you talk a little about yeah. that? <clears throat> yeah. So you know, basically, all, all of these all of these ponds and wetlands are, are sort of acting as as kidneys almost on the landscape. You know, trapping trapping nitrates, phosphorus, other other pollutants, other chemicals running off the landscape, and and, and trapping them and storing them in sediments and, and even breaking them down. Um, so you know, one one study based in uh, in in the northeast in new england found that that beavers had the potential to filter out uh nearly half the nitrates um that are being you know dumped into into uh rivers and streams mostly from farms and that's a, that's a really big deal because as as you say you know when those when those chemicals hit the ocean um you know they basically fertilize these giant uh algal blooms, um, which then create these dead zones, these, these sort of you know, low oxygen, lifeless patches of ocean um, where nothing can live. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's really a huge environmental crisis in, in many places like Chesapeake Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, Long Island Sound. Um, so beavers, by, by trapping that pollution before it reaches the sea, um, really do have, have uh, a, a serious potential um, to you know prevent those dead zones from forming for their their fantastic water quality improvers uh, in in lots of ways. And what about beavers and storing carbon? That was something you you mentioned. Yeah, that's 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 another another big deal. You know, I think that that you know lots of these areas are, are sort of nascent areas of research. You know, um, so so with carbon storage, we know that you know of course these ponds trap lots of organic matter, all of the leaves and sticks and dead insects and and whatnot that you know you would find in an aquatic ecosystem uh, are basically you know they're basically settling out in these beaver ponds. Right, the water rushes downstream, it hits a pond complex and slows down, and then sort of drops its load, and all of this 
organic matter gets uh, trapped in, in the, the sediment layers at the, at the bottom of these ponds. Uh, so they're storing, you know, huge amounts of this carbon-rich or organic matter. So just, just as you would, you know, sequester carbon by, by planting trees, um, there's also the potential to sequester a lot of carbon by, you know, by, by letting beavers do their thing and by trapping all of this organic matter in the sediments of, of beaver ponds. Um, you know, so we know that's, that's beneficial for, for mitigating climate change. You know, we don't really know at this point how much carbon beavers are capable of storing, you know, whether, whether they're making a, a really big dent, um, you know, in, in carbon cycles or whether they're just, you know, a small contributor. Um, but, you know, we know this is another service they're, they're providing for us is sequestering all of this carbon in their pond, pond and wetland bottoms. Great. Uh, it's super long term, too. Uh, one of the things about beavers that uh, is, again, not true all the time, but uh, frequently true is they're really ephemeral on the landscape. They'll go into an area and uh, live there for 5, 10, 20 years and then leave for 5, 10, 20 years, uh, sometimes even longer. And uh, w- once they've stored all of that carbon, all of the sediment and all of the dead wood, they can turn into peatlands. We call those beaver meadows, beaver formed meadows. So, and that like makes the fertile, the soil fertile, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, super fertile and uh, a really unique landscape, uh, a, a feature on the landscape as well. Beaver meadows. Yeah, yeah. there's um, some species of plants that are specifically found in beaver meadows that are 500 years old. And so, like, when the settlers came, the beavers were gone, but there were these beaver meadows, and so uh, peop- the land seemed very lush and productive, but it was originally because of the beavers. That's certainly a big part of it, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and that was, and, you know, and, and a big thing that happened to me, especially in, you know, in, the, in New England, was that, you know, we trapped all the beavers, all of those ponds and wetlands drained, and what you're left behind with are those, you know, those, those meadows that Stephen described. And, uh, you know, and those ended up being the most productive and valuable cropland. You know, New England is sort of a hard place. Uh, you know, it still is a hard place to, to grow crops because, this, you know, the soil is sort of rocky and infertile. Um, so beavers really made agriculture possible uh, in the new world for, you know, for the, for the, the colonists and, and settlers who, you know, arrived uh, from Europe and, and needed to, to survive. Wow. It's it, it just, I mean, I, I can't think of anything they do wrong. <laughs> and, then, and then another thing <laughs> is, is like, like when they build their ponds, but then they dig these little fingers out from their ponds to like, they go kind of deep into the woods so they can like swim in the winter and go get a tree or something. And, and it seems like these little fingers going all over the place through the woods would help, would they help prevent um, wildfires from spreading? Are the, is, can beavers help stop that kind of thing? In yeah, I mean that's that's definitely that's that's another another huge um, area of of sort of new nascent burgeoning research is, is beavers as as wildfire breaks. You know, certainly they're providing these you know these these fantastic damp refugia. Um, and you know, I mean, I've seen uh, I haven't really seen too many studies about this, but you know, but certainly anecdotally, um, you know, I've seen places where um, you know you'll get fire burning down to the edge of a beaver pond or wetland. Um, and then the other side of the pond will be green. You know, it'll be black on one side and green on the other. And it's clear that what happened is that the, the beaver, the beaver pond, basically served as a fire break, uh, preventing the spread of, of, of the, the blaze. Um, so certainly, by you know, by keeping landscapes wet and lush, um, they're you know they're providing some some wildfire mitigation as well. Which is great here, like after two horribly smoky summers in Portland. But um, what yeah. uh, what 
Ben, I I think you saw The Beaver Believers uh, that just came out uh, pretty recently. Yeah. A, a movie called The yeah. Beaver Believers, and that's a, a scene that's very well highlighted with Kent Woodruff uh, seeing the fire that came all the way down to the, the edge of the beaver pond, but then was abated by what it seemed like was beaver activity. Wow. Okay. Right. It, exactly, sounds like, yeah. it sounds like we do have a phone call. Who Who's on the phone there? Sam, what would you like to add or say to us or ask? Hey. Hey. I, I hate to interrupt all this uh, love affair with beavers. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's I know it's coming. Okay, <laughs> I'm si- I'm sitting on a culvert uh-huh. that goes under my driveway, and uh, beavers tramp up and down the Columbia, and they come up side streams, and uh, so I have a beaver that's continually trying to plug up this culvert, and I was wondering if you have. Uh, a humane way to trap a beaver and move it. Uh, yeah, the trapping part, it turns out, is really tricky uh, depending on um, a number of different <laughs> factors, whether the, the beaver is on public or private land. Um, and then I believe if it's on your land, you, you pretty much have the reins to do whatever you want in terms of getting it off uh, getting it off your land, but then there's an issue with where you're going to put it, and there's a lot of permits that you have to fill out through the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife to determine uh, how how that's going to be done. Um, but a big part of my program, the Beaver Ambassadors, is to provide resources that are a lot more beneficial for both you and the beaver. In in this case specifically, we have uh, a device. I think that was invented by Skip Lyle, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, called the culvert protector, which essentially prevents a beaver from getting into your culvert entirely and allows the flow to continue pretty much unabated. It's something that you only have to check on uh, three or four times a year as opposed to digging out a dam constantly from a culvert, which a beaver sees as this really great opportunity to create an easy pond by only making a very small little dam there in the culvert. Um, The issue that we're having to deal with in a lot of cases in um, adding infrastructure uh, is fish passage. Uh, Salmon passage through those devices tends to be really important, but if it's just a culvert going, not necessarily going to a place uh, where fish are rearing or that we haven't seen fish within the past uh, 50 to 100 years, then there's generally not any restrictions on that. Yeah. There was a company called Beaver Solutions, too, that was... Uh, you had some diagrams in your book, Ben, that showed really just how that worked. It's a little weird pipe out deep in the water and then kind of a fence around the culvert, and uh, it looked like it worked beautifully. Yeah, and in most cases, it it does for sure. And, yeah, it's basically, you know, it's kind of a pipe and fence system, Sam, where the, the pipe, you know, is passed through the culvert and sort of drains the... The, uh, the the beaver pond to a, a this sort of a desired level, so you're you're kind of striking a compromise between uh, human and, and rodent, um, and yeah, you know I've seen studies where these these things work, um, you know about eighty five to ninety five percent of the time. Um, so I don't know. I mean, Stephen, maybe it'd be helpful. At, you know, I don't know how somebody like like somebody like Sam would would you know access your group um, or you know get more information about about uh, his options in a situation like that. Um, you know, certainly I'm not I'm not naive about what a a pain in the butt beavers can be. I know they're they're hard to live with for sure. Um, so I, I mean, Stephen, I don't know how. Do you have any thoughts about how a landowner like Sam could actually work with a group like yours to to solve this kind of problem? Yeah, how to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. Our website is beaverambassadors.com, and there's 
also another uh, the beaversolutions.com is a, a great place to check out too. Uh, they're active on the East Coast, but they have excellent information um, and specs. And I know uh, Mike Callahan, who runs that there, is welcome to to reach out to people as well. And uh, uh, there's also, gosh, I'm so sorry, I can't remember the name of the website. It's, I think, Beaver Solutions Northwest or something like that. Uh, that's more out of Southern Oregon, but the gentleman who runs that, oh, Jacob, yeah, Jacob Shockey, he's more than happy yeah. to come up. He's done a lot of work in the Portland area as well. Um, so those are three pretty good resources, and I know there are other outfits as well, uh, but I'm not sure what their capacity is. Um, yeah. Great. Uh, yeah, you know, I also have a cat, and I have a, have a heart trap. You know, I can bait it with a can of tuna fish, and the cat goes in, and uh, the door closes behind him. You don't have anything similar, like a have a heart trap for beavers? Uh, ben, is that uh, the hand the Hancock trap? I think is maybe yeah. That, so that so the ha- the Hancock the Hancock trap is is that sort of the the kind of the classic uh, non-lethal beaver trap, um, yeah. and um, so that you know so that's what you're that's what you're looking for there. But you know, but I also think that you know to me the the bigger point is that look as long as the culvert's there, <coughs> the beavers are always, they're always going to come back, right? I mean, if you if you trap out if you trap the, the that beaver out, you know, you just put up a vacancy sign for the next beaver. So you're you know you're going to be trapping beavers till the till the day you die or sell the land, you know, and that's and that's why I think that, you know, these kinds of culvert protection devices that Stephen described are potentially valuable because they, they solve the problem. You put it in, you know, one time and then you're basically done with it, right? Rather than having to trap trap beavers every single time they show up. Right. Uh, real quick, I just want to say you're tuned to the Recovery Zone on KBOO Portland. We're talking about how we can partner with beavers to restore ecosystems. Ben Goldfarb, environmental journalist and author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, is with us on the phone. Here in the studio, Stephen Merschel, Beaver Ambassador with the Department of Parks and Rec in Westland. And you can call in with your questions or comments, 503-231-8187. And I I think one more thing um, that they do that's really great that Sam might want to consider is that we talked a lot about how the land is drying out all over the place and one of the biggest things that I found that they were doing if we can work with them like you know with the problems that they cause which I do want to get into more um, they also raise aquifer uh, they raise water tables in fact there's people are starting to realize that where they do let beavers in that um that the water levels ra- rise, and for instance, like the willows in Yellowstone were dying, part even though the wolves came back because the water tables had gone down so low. But in the places where the beavers are happening and there are dams, uh, the water tables rise, and then the willows flourish. Uh, could you talk a little about that, like that aspect of beavers? Maybe Ben, you yeah, could start. Definitely. So. Sure. Yeah. So, so you know, when you when you look at a beaver pond, of course, there's all of the visible surface water that you see in the pond. But of course, then there's all of the water that is being forced into the ground, right? As they spread and store and and sink water, um, you know, they're they they are, as you say, Stephanie. You know, they're they're recharging aquifers and raising groundwater tables um, in some places by a couple of feet. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the really cool beaver benefits um, that you know that that many farmers and ranchers are seeing is is, is basically this this sub-irrigation benefit, um, you know, where beavers move in, create ponds and wetlands, and, uh, you know, you get these these rising water tables, and then as a result, you get, you know, incredible grass and, and plant production. Um, so, you know, now in, in many 
arid places in, in the country, including Eastern Oregon. Um, you know, there, there are ranchers who historically uh, detested beavers who are now em- embracing them because they're, you know, they're really seeing fantastic sub-irrigation and, and, and uh, plant production. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really important beaver benefit. And again, another one that we're just beginning to understand in a, in a lot of ways um, is this, this groundwater recharge. Right, right. Uh, yeah, the, the, they create this incredible sense of padding in all sorts of switch situations uh, the beavers do. Um, and uh, for me, when people talk about climate change, sometimes I think it can be really hard to conceptualize how do we solve this really big problem. And there's just a bunch of little little things that we do that can really make an impact. And and beavers just it turns out to be a really good solution when we talk about climate change we're not necessarily talking about areas um, always getting a lot drier Uh, here in Oregon we're seeing a lot more rain in in a lot of situations as well uh, more flooding Uh, so climate change is really leading to um, uh, uncertainty and and uh, extreme events and uh, the beaver is such a great solution to those extreme events because not only is it providing uh, when in times of drought, it's providing more water in those extreme events, but in times of extreme flooding during those events, uh, the beavers can actually prevent flooding as well by storing more water higher up on the landscape. So instead of having all of these streams feeding into the Willamette and the Columbia, the bigger streams that are really flooding and causing uh, massive amounts of problems, if you're, f- if you're storing more water up in the beaver ponds higher up, then less water is even reaching the Willamette and the Columbia, thus right. preventing more so, so more water is being stored up in the mountains, basically. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so there are places where this is... Uh, happening. Uh, I mean, where people, where beavers are starting to make a, a comeback. And Ben, you mentioned the Methow Beaver Project in Washington State. Um, you said you described it as the most, in your book, the most ambitious group tackling beaver restoration. So could you just tell us a little about what they're up to? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I, I actually think, so I, I live in, I live in, in Spokane, Washington, and, and uh, you know, no disrespect to you, you Oregonians, um, but I do think that Washington is is in a lot of ways the most um, you know progressive or advanced uh, beaver management state uh, in in the country, even more perhaps than than the actual beaver state. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm you know I'm pretty pretty proud of of Washington's uh, legacy of of beaver work and you know basically what the what the Metow project does and what a, what a lot of projects in in Washington do is they they trap um, you know so-called nuisance beavers, so beavers that are, you know, clogging up Sam's culvert, for example, and, uh, you know, and they, and they, 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 they trap those beavers alive and they, they relocate them um, to those headwaters that Stephen described, you know, places, places that historically had beavers, where beavers have now been trapped out uh, and have not yet been able to reestablish. Um, they're basically, you know, they're basically dropping beavers in public land, far from human property, where, uh, you know, problems might, might ensue, and letting those beavers build their dams, create ponds and wetlands, you know, store some water, uh, slow down the, the, the spring runoff. Um, and, uh, you know, and they're really seeing, you know, fantastic sort of 
just keeping water in the streams later, right? I mean, that's that's you know that's kind of the, as, as Stephen said, you know, it's it's um, it's just so important that we that we sort of maintain these flows, right? And especially, you know, in in Washington and Eastern Washington, you know, our our, our big issue is we're we're just losing so much snowpack, right? I mean, in the in winter, precipitation is falling as rain rather than snow. So instead of sort of gradually melting over the course of the summer and fall, it just, you know, falls as rain runs off right away and is basically lost um, to, to productive use. And, you know, beavers are just keeping that water on the landscape longer, um, you know, building thousands of little reservoirs and, and just slowing those flows down. So the Metau project and, and other, other beaver relocation projects here in Washington are, you know, sort of proactively using beavers as these reservoir building climate change adaptation strategies. I think that's that's really, really exciting. So like uh, beavers is the new snowpack. Relocation. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Beavers beavers as you know, you just got you just gotta store that water somehow, right? And beavers you know, beavers do it for free. You know, we spend we there's we already spent billions of dollars building giant concrete dams in this country and, and um you know now we're sort of recognizing that those those enormous infrastructural projects have some pretty serious ecological problems and and uh, you know maybe by by building many more small beaver assisted wooden dams you know we can we can uh, provide those same water storage benefits without the ecological harm associated with you know the snake river dams for example ben makes an excellent point about washington being really progressive in their ability to relocate beavers and the metau has done extensive studies about how they're going to relocate, where they're going to relocate beavers, how they can be most effective on the landscape. And relocating beavers is not an easy process. As we mentioned before, uh, they're very um, monogamous. Um, they have, uh, they want to very much be together in their familial groups. So you have got to relocate them together for one. There's a lot of other issues that go along with relocating beavers. Uh, and the, the MetDAO has done a wonderful job of analyzing all of those issues. And it's just it hasn't, it's not something that we've done in a lot of other states. Each state has different like regulations and that's not something that we're able to do in Oregon quite yet. Uh, but I do believe there's a number of policies that are they're trying to pass so we can get as good at relocating beavers as Washington. The beaver is. state isn't gonna be a competition. And we have a phone call. Susanna, what would you like to add? Well, I'm wondering if people are documenting when there is aerial pesticide herbicide spraying, how it impacts the beavers. Do you guys have a comment on that? Huh, I, I, I don't. Stephen, what do you think? Uh, I don't know of any research that's specifically looking into that. Into that. Um, however, I have anecdotally heard a number of times that Beavers are quite resistant to a number of pollutants, whether it be herbicides, pesticides, or just straight up uh, runoff um, garbage. There's uh, an interesting part in Ben's book about paddling in an urban river in New York, I believe, in the Bronx, and right, uh, yeah. just trash being everywhere. And the beavers, it seems like they don't tend to mind or be uh, massively affected by that sort of thing. But I would imagine their health is decreasing to some effect. Right. Sturdy little vegans. And and I do want to talk about here in Oregon, there is a project that's been going on. Uh, it sounded really interesting to me. It's called the Bridge Bridge Creek is that what it was? And Stephen, maybe you could yeah, tell us about so that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's 
So Bridge Creek is in is in Central Oregon. It's a, it's a tributary of the John Day River, which is which is part of the Columbia Basin, um, and. You know, there I think so. What so the kind of the the history there is is you know that was subject to beaver trapping historically, and and um, you know the stream as a result of of beaver trapping and and lots of of grazing, you know the stream really degraded. Um, you know there was kind of rapid erosion, uh, and um, you know it just kind of became very marginal fish habitat. And uh, you know the the issue there is that you know the scientists recognized that beavers could potentially do a lot of good in in healing and restoring this stream. But it was just a hard place for for beavers to live, um, because you know when you when you get this stream that's that's really eroded or incised, as scientists put it, you know it's really trapped within its banks. Um, you know that's that's just a hard place for a beaver to build a dam because the dam gets sort of blown out by the the fire hose of the stream. Um, so what they what they did at Bridge Creek, um, in addition to so first they you know the the Bureau of Land Management basically uh, banned grazing there to let the vegetation recover, uh, and then these these scientists from from NOAA from the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration basically came in and they built um, over a hundred beaver dam analogs. So beaver dam analogs are basically you know sort of human built beaver dams. Um, you know you you pound a few sort of upright posts into the stream bed, you weave some willow uh, through the posts, and uh, and then let the beavers kind of take over. The, the idea is they're sort of like beaver starter kits, um, you know, in places where the, the actual animals might be having a hard time uh, establishing. Um, and so there, you know, they saw... They saw just incredible benefits as a result of those those beaver dam analogs. You know, the beavers themselves, which which again had you know been kind of having a hard time building dams in this very degraded stream. Um, you know, they they flourished. Um, they saw this huge increase in beaver activity, and as a result, you know, as the, as the stream changed, as it, be, it went from sort of this you know single threaded, straight, fast uh, you know line through the landscape to this much more complex, braided, multi-channel. Um, ecosystem that just had all kinds of great little hiding spots and, and side channels and backwaters for fish. Uh, and the result of that was, was they, they saw these really dramatic increases in the survival of, of baby steelhead. Steelhead are, you know, they're basically rainbow trout that kind of go to sea like a salmon and, uh, they're, they're threatened in the, in the, the mid Columbia basin. Um, so thanks to this kind of beaver dam analog project, um, you know, they saw really remarkable increases in the survival of these threatened fish, which is very exciting. So now, this, this beaver dam analog technique is being used all over the West. You know, there, there are people are building beaver dam analogs in Wyoming to create, you know, kind of wet meadow habitat for sage grouse. And they're, you know, they're doing it in Utah to create habitat for cutthroat trout. And, you know, there are a million beaver dam analog projects out there. And it's a really, it's a really promising way that, that humans and beavers can kind of work together. It's sort of like a, a beaver recruitment strategy. You know, you know that you need beavers in this place. How can we get them to recover? Well, let's give them a, a leg up by building some of these these kind of beaver starter kits. Uh, I think Sam brought up a really salient point about uh, beavers are a nuisance species and they do create conflicts, especially in an urban setting. And as populations are increasing, they're coming more and more into the urban places. Uh, but one of the outcomes of uh, the Bridge Creek study and um, other players, uh, in, environment, uh, environmental scientists in this area, um, Janine Castro, uh, the U.S. Forest Service, they got together and they created that beaver restoration guidebook because they were having people beginning to come to them and say, well, okay, I, I understand that um, beavers can benefit 
my farmland or my agricultural area, but um, I don't understand how to work with beavers. And the beaver restoration guidebook is meant to be accessible for landowners to do just that. And another really smart thing that I think they did as a result of the guidebook was to hold those workshops uh, that Ben first heard about all of this beaver business. And they, they held workshops all around the arid part of Oregon so that the ranchers and, and owners of agricultural land over there could see that it is really impactful to having water available for their farms um, and for their ranches, which is very important over in eastern Oregon. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. And another thing about it with the Caring Bridge, it wasn't as if beavers had to be um, delivered. They just sort of showed up, right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Right, and... Yeah, and they, you know, and they and they had already been in 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 the system, but again, they you know they'd just kind of had a hard time uh, establishing. But I think you know I think that the bigger point is that you know is that we can really you know we can create the the conditions for these animals to flourish. You know, it's not it's actually not that it's not that hard. You know, the, the beaver beaver relocation, moving beavers around, is you know it's it's sort of sexy and and uh, you know you could, it, the newspapers love covering, and I I covered it in my book ex- extensively. But you know I think that there there are even even if you don't have the permits um, to to relocate beavers, um, you know we can still do a lot from a, a land management perspective to help these animals come back. It doesn't you don't just have to move them around. You can just you know change change land management practices and uh, encourage their return. Yeah, Uh, I very much agree. Or if they are there and you're having conflicts with them, you can change your land management strategies to keep them on the landscape without them doing damage to your land. Yeah, which I totally want to get into with our last little segment here. Um, You're tuned to the Recovery Zone here on KBOO Portland. We're talking about how we can partner with beavers and restore ecosystems. Ben Goldfarb, environmental journalist and author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, which is a great book, is with us on the phone. And here in the studio, Stephen Merschel, Beaver Ambassador with the Department of Parks and Recreation in Westland. Um, in, just in the last 15 minutes, you can call in with your questions or comments, 503-231-8187. And I want to get into like um, some of these like how to solve the problems before we end, but be, I also want to ask Stephen, uh, what about um, the stuff that you're doing in Westland? What what kinds of projects are happening there? The Beaver Ambassadors is pretty an ambitious project. Uh, I met the executive director of the Parks and Rec Department when he gave us a tour of one of their parks, Mary S. Young Park, down in Westland, and it has this incredibly accessible beaver complex right there, just off the path, and. I told him I could uh, do some consulting about how he might manage that population, and that really blossomed into this massive project, Beaver Ambassadors. And our three major topics are uh, management plans that I helped develop uh, within the parks where they have beaver conflicts in Westland. We do uh, environmental outreach programs for the entire community, and we do uh, youth education. I'm doing a lot of work specifically with the high school, uh, so do some work with uh, Willamette Primary School and a couple other elementary schools in the Westland area. So you visit the schools and mm-hmm. just talk about beavers? Not just about beavers. We talk about a lot of other environmental topics, uh-huh. too. Uh, beavers are a really useful tool uh, because they are doing all of these incredible Benefits. They have all these incredible benefits to the ecosystem, um, so they're a really great tool to use. But we do a lot of other things too, um, f- from GIS 
uh, understanding um, geographic information systems better to understanding biodiversity better. Um, And as in terms of just a self plug, the Beaver Ambassadors real quick, in terms of the environmental outreach, we actually have a event tonight called the Full Moon over Westland, where we use the cycle, this natural cycle of the full moon as a way to talk about other natural cycles. Uh, And we try to relate that to I learned this kind of recently. All of the full moons have names. Uh, the November moon is actually the beaver moon. The January full moon is the wolf moon. And the October full moon is the hunter's moon. So we'll have uh, the World Salmon Council out as well as Trackers Earth uh, are doing a, a little archery uh demonstration and where could people go to find out where to go to that they can check the westland parks and rec web web page uh or beaverambassadors.com uh-huh. and it'll be at maddox woods at 6 45 p.m tonight great beaver uh beaverambassadors.com okay and <clears throat> learn more and find out more and get involved um and apparently um like as as sam pointed out there are problems with beavers like Besides the culvert issue, I guess some people are concerned because beavers might chop down their fruit trees. I just talked to somebody here at Cabo about that. Um, how does how do people deal with that kind of thing? I mean, they do love to chop down trees. Maybe Ben, yeah, you have you an idea. Take, you, should, you should you should take you should take that one. You're you're doing that work. Oh, I feel like I've been talking a lot. But okay, yeah, uh, we cage the trees. Uh, you can use um, it's just a little bit higher grade than chicken wire. It tends to work a little bit better than chicken wire. But I've seen situations where people are using chicken wire as well. Um, just set the cage off the tree a few inches because the tree's going to grow, and you don't want the cage to be growing around the tree. You can also paint the tree create a paint mixture with sand in it and paint the tree uh the beavers don't like the gritty sandiness um so that's another easy solution um ben did you have any others no i think i think that covers it yeah and that are those the main two problems that people want to call beavers pests is blocking culverts and maybe creating a little flooding or eating their trees i mean are there other problems that beavers cause that upset people yeah, you know, I think I think that um, you know Stephen alluded to to them uh, tunneling into into riverbanks and flood defenses. I think that that in some places can be can be another big one. Um, but you know, I think I, you know, to to me, I mean, certainly, certainly, look, I'm not, I don't I don't deny that they that they cause some they cause some problems. But I also, I also think that there's you know there's sort of this reflexive concern about beavers. You know, I, I always hear um, you know one thing I, I hear a lot is is you know, somebody will call a, a homeowner will call up, you know, their their local trapper um, or you know, or beaver relocator and say, well, you know, hey, I just want you to know, I I, I saw a beaver, and you know, trapper will be like, well, what's the so what's the what's the problem? What's the conflict that, that they're <laughs> causing? And the, the the person will say, well, you know, I I saw him, he's around, um, and I think that's you know, I think there there is this sort of reflexive. Well, there are beavers in the area; they must be causing problems. Um, but you know, the, the vast majority of the time, that's that's not the that's not the case. You know, we we really can live alongside these these creatures pretty effectively, and in most cases, we do. I think it's really great that this is becoming uh, more coming up more in our attention. Um, it's wonderful that Ben wrote this book, so more people could be exposed to it. I really see beavers as this incredible one-off. I've been in environmental science for going up seven, eight, eight years now, so not terribly long, but I haven't really encountered a single 
animal such like this that makes an incredible difference just this one little thing and I, I really see them as kind of a, a one-off in the environmental world yeah well it sounds like the the you know ultimate keystone species in a way right absolutely yeah <clears throat> yeah yeah uh-huh. and but but at the same time uh, Ben you had something in your book you had these two different quotes and one was <clears throat> beaver-based restoration is still a new approach and shoehorning it into existing regulatory systems can make for an uneasy fit um, or permitting streams to exercise, in other words, wander around and be a little more messy, and employing beavers right. as their personal trainers is a radical notion that flies in the face of a century of watershed management. Um, <clears throat> so, and, and in some places, um, there be people like, I guess, this guy Art Parola was an engineer at the Wine Cup Gamble Ranch in Nevada, and he had to dismantle mm-hmm. a beaver lodge the government asked him to do that, even though there were wood ducks everywhere from this pond. Um, what are some of the what's going on there? Right. So, so in, you know, in North America, that we have this this giant multi billion dollar stream restoration industry, right? All of these all of these engineers and and hydrologists, uh, you know, who are focused on improving streams that have been you know channelized or eroded or degraded or 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 what have you and you know that's and that's a wonderful thing of course it's fantastic that you know we have we spend so much time and money in money and energy um you know trying to heal these ecosystems that we that we've damaged uh the trouble is you know we don't i mean first it's you know can be incredibly um expensive to the cost of being to the point of being cost prohibitive um to to do a lot of this stream restoration and the other problem is that you know our, our a lot of our restoration efforts, you know, tend to focus on stability, right? So it's so, you know, if the, if the problem is that a stream is, is eroding, you know, we want to stabilize it, you know, lock it in place, keep it from wandering around. With cement. Um, you know, and that, and that with cement, right, or, or you know, or, or riprap or, or uh, you know, or, or by bolting in root wads or, or what have you. And, you know, it's, it's kind of an understandable impulse, right? I mean, we, you know, we're trying to you know, create the landforms that we think are supposed to be there. And of course, the other the other issue is that, you know, because we live on these floodplains, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, you can't always let streams wander around and do what they want. But, you know, I think that lots of lots of researchers are discovering, um, this is a, you know, a big, a big point of emphasis in my book, um, that, you know, streams historically were just so much more dynamic than we recognize, right? They, you know, they had, they had multiple channels, they, they wandered around, as you, as you say, um, you know they were they were pretty messy, and you know and that's and that's a, a really wonderful thing for the environment in in lots of ways. Um, and beavers create that that messiness. Um, so in in some in some cases there you know I think there is sort of a conflict between traditional stream restoration approaches that are very focused on stability and you know creating new stream forms and maintaining them versus using beavers and letting them be dynamic and letting them, you know, move the stream all over the floodplain and uh, create all these different channels and ponds and wetlands and slack waters and, and eddies. And, uh, you know, so, so I, th- I think there's, there is something of a conflict there, and that's why I'm really excited by techniques like, like these beaver dam analogs I was talking about earlier, stream restoration techniques that work with beavers rather than against them and allow streams to be a little bit messy and dynamic and changing. 
So I think that's, you know, that's, I mean, to, to me, it's a, you know, if there's one lesson of, of this book, it's, it's basically, you know, we need to embrace a certain degree of chaos in our aquatic ecosystems because that's how things were historically. And if we want to, if we want to reap all of the wonderful benefits um, of beavers, you know, we, we need to learn to live with a little bit of, of instability and change. And of course, you know, we humans are not very, we're, we're pretty change averse. Um, yeah. So, you know, working working with beavers requires kind of a fundamental rethinking of, of how we interact with nature. Yeah. And Stephen, uh, we're getting toward the end. Do you have any last thoughts just quick? Uh, no, I thought that some what Ben just said summed things up really well. And balance in nature is very important. We have to learn how to find that balance. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you've got a, a event out at the uh, see Maddox. What was that? Um, Maddox? Maddox Woods at six forty-five p.m. Yeah. Okay, and that's just check that out at beaverambassadors.com. Exactly. Great, and um, uh, I just want to let people know uh, you've been hearing from Stephen Merschel. He's a beaver ambassador with the Department of Parks and Recs at, in Westland, and also Ben Goldfarb, who's an environmental journalist, and he's the author of Eager, which is a book I just loved. Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. It's a really, truly inspiring book. Um, This has been The Recovery Zone on your listener-supported volunteer community radio station, KBOO Portland. I'm Stephanie Potter. I want to thank Tammy Deem for her fine engineering and thank all of you for listening and supporting KBOO. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Ben. Bye. Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor Shout Out for the Climate. Our future is a constitutional right. On Monday, October 29th at 11.30 a.m. at Terry Shrunk Plaza in Portland. Shout Out for Climate supports the young plaintiffs in the historic Juliana v. United States court case. The event will feature music, art, relationship, and momentum building for local youth interconnection and action. Again, that's Shout Out for the Climate. Our future is a constitutional right on Monday, October 29th, 11.30 a.m. at Terry Shrunk Plaza, 431 Southwest Madison Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the home page under Community Events. Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the Sister Mary Project on Saturday, November 3rd at the Claygate Estate Vineyard in Newburgh, Oregon. The Sister Mary Project is an event to raise awareness for multiple sclerosis and to recognize local caregivers. The Sister Mary Project will perform and there will be information, beverages, and snacks Saturday, November 3rd. Again, that's the 